There are times in our lives when we all ask, God, why is this happening to me? God, why now? God, how long will this go on? Gratefully, God can handle our questions. And though we don't always get the answers we're looking for, God doesn't leave us without hope. We can trust that His wisdom is greater than ours, and we can persevere knowing that He will keep His saving promises to those who are in Christ Jesus. In this message, David Platt points us to Job 3 and the example of a man who suffered greatly, but who found God faithful in the end. Regardless of our circumstances or our questions, we can rest in God's sovereign care. This is the Radical with David Platt podcast. Here is David with a message titled, God, Why? So we're in Job 3, which means we're jumping past the start of this book, which we've studied before as a church family. So I don't want to go back over all of Job 1 and 2, but for those of you who may not be familiar with this story, here's the setup. In the beginning of Job 1, Job had everything he desired a wife, a house full of children, a wealth of possessions, good health, and he was blameless and upright before God. He feared God, he did good, turned away from evil. But then in an instant, you read Job 1, it's like a torrent of waves that come one after another after another. All of his possessions are stripped away from him. And then all 10 of Job's children die instantly. And then in Job 2, he loses his good health. Physically, he is in miserable pain. And his wife is telling him to curse God and die. Yet after all of this, at the end of Job 1 and 2, he is still worshiping God. Amen. Job 1 says when all this happened to his possessions and then his children, Job arose, tore his robe, and shaved his head, and he fell on the ground and worshiped. And he said, naked I came from my mother's womb, and naked shall I return. The Lord gave, and the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. Then, at the end of Job 2, Now mired in physical pain, his wife telling him to curse God and die, Job 2.10 says, he said to her, you speak as one of the foolish women would speak. Shall we receive good from God and shall we not receive evil? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. These are two of the most remarkable statements of faith ever recorded in history. Statements of trust in and worship of God in the middle of unimaginable tragedy and loss and hurt and pain. Yet, this was just the beginning. It's one thing to experience a sudden tragedy. It's an entirely different challenge, isn't it, to experience the pain of that loss for days and months and years afterward. And that's the journey that begins to unfold in Job 3. As we see this blameless, upright man who's completely committed to God, but is wrestling and struggling deeply with God over the mysteries of God's ways. Job wrestling with questions, God, why? 
And he's wrestling with these questions in a trash heap amidst unimaginable physical pain and hurt. And before long, some supposed friends show up named Eliphaz, Bildad, and Zophar. And after Job initially speaks in Job 3, a threefold cycle begins where Eliphaz speaks, then Job responds. And Bildad speaks, then Job responds. And Zophar speaks, and Job responds. And they do this rotation three times, although the third time one of them basically drops out and a new guy named Elihu comes in. And on a whole, the counsel these friends give is extremely unhelpful. Remember, as you read through the book of Job, if you're following along in our Bible reading, just because something is in the Bible doesn't mean it's an example for us to follow. There are many things in the Bible that God gives us as examples not to follow. And that includes much of the counsel we see from these supposed friends. Now, don't be mistaken, much of what these friends say at different points is true, but the way they apply that truth is often unhelpful or their timing or tone in sharing certain truths are unhelpful. And then some of the things they say just aren't true. At the core of their unhelpful counsel is an insistence that surely Job has done something to deserve this, when that was not the case. But these guys had no category for innocent suffering. They thought, if something bad happens to you, then you deserve it. If something good happens to you, you deserve that. That is horrible theology. Nevertheless, in the middle of all these conversations between Job and these guys, we do find some anchors to ground our hearts and our minds amidst the waves of why questions in our lives. And Job 3 is exactly the place to start because of how many times Job asks why. I want to read the whole chapter for us. And I would just encourage you, circle every time you see the question, why? So we'll start in Job chapter 3, verse 1. After this, Job opened his mouth and cursed the day of his birth. Job said, so he's speaking to his friends, let the day perish on which I was born and the night that said a man is conceived. Let that day be darkness. May God above not seek it, nor light shine upon it. Let gloom and deep darkness claim it. Let clouds dwell upon it. Let the blackness of the day terrify it. That night, let thick darkness seize it. Let it not rejoice among the days of the year. Let it not come into the number of the months. Behold, let that night be barren. Let no joyful cry enter it. Let those who curse it, who curse the day, who are ready to rouse up Leviathan. Let the stars of its dawn be dark. Let it hope for light but have none, nor see the eyelids of the morning, because it did not shut the doors of my mother's womb, nor hide trouble from my eyes. And then he says, why? Did I not die at birth? Come out from the womb and expire. Why did the knees receive me or why the breasts that I should nurse? For then I would have lain down and been quiet. I would have slept. Then I would have been at rest with kings and counselors of the earth who rebuilt ruins for themselves or with princes who had gold who filled their houses with silver. Or why was I not as a hidden stillborn child, as infants who never see the light? 
There the wicked cease from troubling, and there the weary are at rest. There the prisoners are at ease together. They hear not the voice of the taskmaster. The small and the great are there, and the slave is free from his master. Why is light given to him who is in misery, and life to the bitter in soul, who long for death, but it comes not, and dig for it more than for hidden treasures, who rejoice exceedingly and are glad when they find the grave. Why is light given to a man whose way is hidden, whom God has hedged in? For my sighing comes instead of my bread, and my groanings are poured out like water. For the thing I fear comes upon me, and what I dread befalls me. I am not at ease, nor am I quiet. I have no rest, but trouble comes. Wow. I talk about heavy. This is the first time we hear Job speak after his declarations of faith in God. And six different times in this chapter, he's asking why. And his why question really is the most fundamental of all. Why was I even born? Like if this is what I was going to experience, why did you even make me God? Feel the depth of emotion in this man who is coming before God in faith, hurting and broken, asking, why am I even here? With a clear implication, I don't want to be here. I don't want to live. Like he's longing for death. Yet, in the chapters that follow, I want to show you the fruit of this kind of honest faith. I want to show you the anchors that Job, amidst real, raw emotions and questions, is holding onto in his why questions, because they're the same anchors that God has given you and me to hold onto. So here's the first. I would encourage you to write this down. First one, amidst all your questions about why, Remember that God is all wise. Amen. So I try to intentionally phrase this in a way that would be memorable that when you think of why and all your questions about why, you remember God is all wise. And there's so much we could look at here that you'll see if you're following along in the Bible reading over the next couple of weeks. But I want you to go ahead and jump ahead with me to Job 28, because this is what many biblical scholars say contains the central scene and really literary climax of Job's journey. So obviously, uh, when you get to verse, uh, chapter 38 and God speaks to Job, like there's, that's a climactic moment for sure from the last few chapters of the book. But here, right in the middle of the book, it's why Job is referred to in the Bible as wisdom literature, in large part because of this chapter. So as Job is wrestling with why, listen to what he says, starting in Job chapter 28, verse 12. He says, but where shall wisdom be found? And where is the place of understanding? And he starts talking about wisdom, much like we see in the book of Proverbs. Man does not know its worth. It's not found in the land of the living. The deep says it's not in me. The sea says it's not with me. 
It, talking about wisdom, cannot be bought for gold and silver cannot be weighed as its price. It cannot be valued in the gold of offer and precious onyx or sapphire. Gold and glass cannot equal it, nor can it be exchanged for jewels of fine gold. No mention shall be made of coral or of crystal. The price of wisdom is above pearls. The topaz of Ethiopia cannot equal it, nor can it be valued in pure gold. From where then does wisdom come? Where is the place of understanding? It's hidden from the eyes of all living, concealed from the birds of the air. Abaddon and death say, we have heard a rumor of it with our ears. Then he says, God understands the way to it. Amen. He knows its place. For he looks to the ends of the earth and he sees everything under the heavens. When he gave to the wind its weight and apportioned the waters by measure, when he made a decree for the rain and a way for the lightning of the thunder, then he saw it and declared it. He established it and searched it out. And he said to man, behold, the fear of the Lord, that is wisdom. To turn away from evil is understanding. And that's that's straight Proverbs. Wisdom. Job is searching for wisdom here, understanding. And he's frustrated because he knows that God possesses it and he doesn't have it. So when you get down to verse 23, you see, and I want you to follow this, maybe write these down. This is so key for us amidst our why questions. I want to show you three ingredients that are necessary for wisdom. So look at this picture with me. One, wisdom involves knowledge. God understands the way to it. He knows its place. So to be wise is to have knowledge. Then second ingredient, wisdom involves perspective. Verse 24, for God looks to the ends of the earth. He sees everything under the heavens. So wisdom is the ability to perceive, to know, to perceive. And then third, wisdom involves experience. Job starts talking about how God has created everything. He gave to the wind its weight, portioned the waters by measure, made a decree for the rain, a way for the lightning and the thunder. He made everything himself, and he's the one who saw wisdom. He declared wisdom. He established wisdom. He searched it out. In the first place, God formed wisdom from the beginning. So, with these three ingredients, knowledge, perspective, experience, let's meditate for a moment on our limited wisdom. So let's just think for a minute in each of our lives about how we as human beings, as creatures, not the creator, how we lack all of these things, don't we? Like we lack knowledge. How, how often do we act unwisely because we don't know everything? How many times have you found out something later and thought, if I'd known that, I would have never done this. I wouldn't have said that if I'd have known that. We don't know everything that leads to foolishness. 
We're not wise because we don't know everything. And the more we grow in knowledge, the more we grow in wisdom. Similarly, we lack perspective. We don't see everything. And we certainly don't see everything clearly. Our perspective is always, at best, limited, and at worst, jaded or distorted or sometimes just wrong. We never perceive all the factors at work in every situation, all the effects of a decision we might make. Or maybe we're just not able to see things from another's point of view. And we can do unwise things. We can say, oh, if I'd have known how this would be taken, if I'd have seen it from that perspective, I would have said something different. I would have done something different. We lack perspective. And then third, we lack experience. If we've never been through a situation before, well, we learn some things first time we walk through it that we know for next time how to better handle. The more we grow in experience, the more we grow in wisdom. But we're obviously limited in our experience. So we lack knowledge, perspective, and experience, which is why we find ourselves searching for understanding and wisdom. But let's meditate for a moment on God's limitless wisdom. Think about this. How God has perfect knowledge. He knows everything. Past, present, future. God always has all the facts. God never finds out something later and says, ah, I didn't realize that. I would have done something different if I knew that. That never happens in God. God always acts in light of all the facts because he has perfect knowledge. And second, God has eternal perspective on everything at all time. He looks to the ends of the earth, verse 24 said. He sees everything under the heavens. True wisdom sees everything in proper perspective. And God has eternally proper, perfect perspective. God sees and understands how any one thing will affect every other thing, including every person at every time throughout all time, eternity. God sees millions of things that we cannot see. And then, finally, God has infinite experience. He's the one who made the world, and he made wisdom. And he has always acted wisely in all that he has done. In other words, God is no rookie when it comes to wisdom. He's wisdom's author. God has infinite experience as the infinitely wise God. So, amidst all of our questions about why, what do we need to remember? We need to remember that we are not all wise, and God is. We lack so much knowledge, perspective, and experience, and God lacks none of these things. Which is why in the middle of our why questions, right in the middle of the book of Job, we have this central climactic 
declaration that God is all wise and as a result, God is trustworthy. You and I honestly ask, how can we trust God when this or that happened or this or that is happening? And the answer is, you can trust God when you remember that his knowledge is perfect, that he knows all things, he knows what is best in all things, and you can trust God when you remember that his perspective is eternal, when you remember he sees so many things that you do not see, including the effects of all these things on every single person in history for all of eternity. And you can trust God when you remember that he has infinite experience, that he was and is and always will be, and that in his wisdom, he knows how to take even evil and suffering and turn it for good. Isn't this the gospel, the story at the center of this book? The story of Jesus, the perfect, innocent, blameless son of God being beaten, tortured, and nailed to a cross to die. Why, God? See this. You're not alone. You're writing out your why questions. Jesus on the cross, Matthew 27, 46, at about the ninth hour, Jesus cried out with a loud voice saying, Eli, Eli, lemma sabachthani, that is my God, my God, what? Why have you forsaken me? Jesus, in his humanity, in his suffering, is asking why. Why the cross? Why the pain? Why death? And the answer is because God the Father, in his limitless wisdom, has perfect knowledge of every single one of our sins. And God, in his eternal perspective, had designed a way for every one of us in this gathering who trusts in Jesus 2,000 years later to be sitting here today saved from all our sins. Because God, in his infinite experience, knew what was best to bring us to himself for all of eternity. So Jesus, praise God, trusted the wisdom of the Father and endured the cross and the most evil act in all of history, the crucifixion of the blameless Son of God ushered in the most wonderful reality in all of history, salvation for every person from every nation who trusts in him. Behold the wisdom of God. Behold the trustworthiness of God. God is infinitely wise, and we are not. So, amidst all your questions about why, we must remember that God is all wise. And it honors, it glorifies God when we trust in Him when we admittedly and honestly don't understand what he's doing. Which leads right in to the second anchor amidst the wave of why questions we have in this fallen world. In the depth of your despair, hold fast to God as your hope. 
in the depth of your despair, you can hold fast to God as your hope. So think back to chapter 3. I think depth of despair is an appropriate description of Job. Don't you? Like he's despairing of life itself. The number of times he talked about darkness, like this picture of despair. And that continues throughout his various responses to his friends. Here's just a few examples. Job 6, 8 and 9. Oh, that I might have my request, that God will fulfill my hope, that it would please God to crush me, that he would let loose his hand and cut me off. Job 7.16, I loathe my life. I would not live forever. Leave me alone for my days or a breath. Job 10.20, are not my days few? Then cease and leave me alone that I may find a little cheer before I go and I shall not return to the land of darkness and deep shadow, the land of gloom like thick darkness, like deep shadow without any order where there is light as thick darkness. You see that repetition, darkness, thick darkness, thick darkness. He says, Job 17, 13, if I hope for Sheol, death is my house. If I might make my bed again in darkness, if I say to the pit, you're my father, to the worm, my mother or my sister, where then is my hope? Who will see my hope? You see it. Job is covered up in the depth of despair. And what's he longing for? Like hope. Where is my hope? Who will see my hope? Which is the challenge, right? It's what despair is. It's, it's darkness with no sign of light on the horizon. You ever been there? And Job hits rock bottom in a sense in chapter 19. Listen to these words that he says to his friends as he feels like everyone is against him. Everything is against him. He has put my brothers far from me. Those who knew me are wholly estranged from me. My relatives have failed me. My close friends have forgotten me. The guests in my house and my maidservants count me as a stranger. I've become a foreigner in their eyes. I call to my servant, but he gives me no answer. I must plead with him with my mouth for mercy. My breath is strange to my wife. I'm a stench to the children of my own mothers, brothers and sisters. Even young children despise me. When I rise, they talk against me. All my intimate friends abhor me. Those whom I have loved have turned against me. My bones stick to my skin and to my flesh. I have escaped by the skin of my teeth. Have mercy on me. Have mercy on me. Oh, you, my friends, for the hand of God has touched me. Why do you, like God, pursue me? Why are you not satisfied with my flesh? Despair, desertion, destruction, and seemingly no hope. But it's at this point, in the depth of Job's despair, that we read one of the most remarkable, thrilling, triumphant parts of this entire book. Listen to Job in the very next sentence. He says, oh, that my words were written. Oh, they were inscribed in a book. Just feel the intensity here. Oh, that with an iron pen and lead, they were engraved in the rock forever. What words? Here it is, verse 25. For I know that my Redeemer lives. Amen. And at the last, he will stand upon the earth. And after my skin 
has been thus destroyed, yet in my flesh I shall see God, whom I shall see for myself, and my eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. Wow. In the depth of Job's despair, he cries out, I still have hope. And let's be clear, Job still has why questions. It's not like all of a sudden they've been answered. Quite the opposite. Job doesn't seem to have any of them answered. He doesn't know why. But follow this. He does know who. So he cries out, I know this. There's a lot of things I don't know. All these questions I don't know, but I know this. I know I have a redeemer who lives. A redeemer. A vindicator. This word is used in Ruth to describe the champion of the oppressed. It's used in Exodus to describe the deliverer of the captives. It's used in Proverbs to describe the defender of the weak. Job says, I, and there's an emphasis there, even I, just like you see, for myself, me, not another, I, I have a redeemer who lives and at the last. That's a great phrase. I don't miss it. This is not the last. This pain, this suffering, this hurt, this heartache, this is not the last. This is not the end. At the last, he will stand upon the earth, and he will deliver me after my skin has been thus destroyed. There's something after. There's something after your skin is destroyed. There's something after the pain and the hurt and the heartache and the sickness and the loss and the grief. There's something after. After my skin has been thus destroyed, in my flesh I shall see God. What? In my flesh? Yes, in my flesh. I shall see him for myself with my own eyes. My eyes shall behold and not another. My heart faints within me. My heart longs and yearns and hopes within me. Oh, friend. No matter how young or old you are, no matter what you have been through, no matter how hard and painful your why questions are, I urge you today, hold fast to God in hope. Do not turn away from God in your despair. Where in this world where will you turn? Who or what in this world is infinitely wise and perfectly worthy of your trust? There is only one. And for all who trust in him, for you, when you hold fast to hope in him, you will behold him as your redeemer. As your, just feel this, your vindicator, your defender, your deliverer, your provider, your healer, the one who alone can make all things new in your life. 
and in this fallen world of sin and evil and suffering, in your flesh, you will see God. Your hope face to face and he will wipe every tear from your eyes and he will satisfy you forever and ever and ever. So hold fast to hope in the all wise, infinitely, eternally trustworthy God today. I just want to pray over you. Would you bow your heads with me? God, amidst all of the why questions on our hearts and minds, we look to you together right now. And God, I just want to intercede on behalf of every single person within the sound of my voice. God, I pray that they would know in this moment that you love them, that you, the all-wise God, love them. Oh God, for anyone who has not put their trust in Jesus as Redeemer, may this be the day. May this be the moment where they trust in you, Jesus, what you did on the cross to forgive them of their sins, to restore them to relationship with you. And God, for all who have put their trust in Jesus, may they know that you have You have given them eternal life for the next 10 trillion years and beyond. So they can trust you with today and tomorrow and this week, no matter what it holds. God, we praise you for your wisdom. We just confess together right now, we lack knowledge and perspective and experience and we don't understand as a result. We don't understand why this or that. But we're trusting that you're all wise and you see all things and you know all things and you're working all things together for the good of those who love you and have been called according to your purpose. We're trusting in you and God, we we pray for that kind of faith on days when faith is hard to come by. God, I know there are weary heads in this gathering right now where that faith is hard to come by. God, I pray that you'd give faith strength, comfort, peace that makes no sense, joy in chaos, and and hope that transcends anything this world brings our way. Jesus, we praise you for your death on the cross for us, for your resurrection from the grave. We praise you that you are our redeemer and you live. And we long for, we look forward to the day when we will see your face and you will wipe every tear from our eyes. So help us to hold fast to hope until that day when faith becomes sight. Oh God, we love your word. We love your word. We need your word. In this fallen world, just honestly confess, we don't understand so many things, but we trust your word. And we trust your wisdom. And we praise you. We just, God, even as I'm praying this right now, I think, what would it be like if, if the sovereign creator of all wasn't all wise? If you didn't have all knowledge and perspective, you were just doing the best you could, but you didn't have all that. God, we're so thankful you're all wise. And we're so thankful that you're all good and all loving. We're so thankful. So keep our eyes fixed on you, we pray. 
In Jesus' name, we pray all these things. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Gender, sexuality, artificial intelligence, race, justice, genomics, the metaverse. Life seems so very complicated these days, fragmented even. And everyone has an opinion about everything. But what does the Bible say about all these issues? About you, about me, about the 7 billion people that fill every street, town, campus, village, apartment, and neighborhood on earth. Join us for this year's Secret Church. It's a unique one-night event streamed online to more than 50,000 participants around the world. Encouraged by our persecuted brothers and sisters example, we meet for close to six hours for intense study of God's Word and passionate prayer for the persecuted, taught and led by David Platt. Join us on Friday, April 29th at 7 p.m. Participating in Secret Church Livestream is easy. You can stream from your church, home, office, or anywhere you have an internet connection. For more information or to sign up, visit Radical.net. Well, that's it for today's episode. I'm your host, Stacey Martin. For additional articles, podcasts, events, and more, visit Radical.net or follow us on Facebook and Instagram.